them. You know what's going to happen? Good. So do I. While they're making their way out, I, I, I actually like doing this uh, lately. Would any of you mind, could I get one person to stand up and just pray for the sermon? Anyone with the guts? To, okay, Ruby, thank you. Amen. Thank you, Ruby. All right, well, about a year and a half ago, uh, I got an invitation to go to Harrisburg. There was a church that was starting in Harrisburg in a neighborhood called Allison Hill, which is kind of like, from what I understand, kind of like the North Philly of Harrisburg. And I went there because they were, they were opening up and they had just bought a building and they were having a building dedication. Apparently, a bunch of other people were busy that day, so I got asked to be the speaker at the building dedication of a church in Harrisburg, and I was really honored, so I went over to this church in Harrisburg. It was a Sunday afternoon, so we had church here, then I went over there to speak at that uh, service, and we did this building dedication. It was, it was, the building reminded me actually a lot of uh, True Vine Wissanoming. It was about the same size uh, sanctuary and very similar situation. The building was not in great shape. But they had just bought it. They were going to, over the course of several years, they were going to fix it up. And uh, we did the building dedication. I preached at it from Proverbs 11. Went home thinking I had done a great job. And like six weeks later, there was a big rainstorm. And all the water that was supposed to go outside of the building went inside the building. Completely flooded the the church and caused over a quarter million dollars worth of damage uh, to that building. And that is why I've never been invited back to be part of a dedication service. I'm that guy that, I got that flood anointing uh, where you get your building flooded afterwards. So uh, now there was a little positive end of that story. It caused like a quarter million dollars worth of damage, but they got like $400,000 worth of money from their insurance company. So actually everything there is like state of the art. So if we could find a way to flood some stuff, that's probably illegal. But uh, it actually worked out great for them. But I've still never been invited back because they don't want some, anything else to break. Uh, but that was a building dedication. How many of you have attended a church or school or community building dedication at any point in your life? A couple of you? Okay. Now this building that we're in, which we do not own but we rent, is 130 years old. Specifically, this section is 130 years old. I know, I'm, I'm sure, especially because it's a Presbyterian building, you know they had a building dedication service. And then about 30 years later, they built that wing of the building, and they had a building dedication service, and they actually saved the shovel from when they started shoveling the dirt. That's like one of those expensive shovels you buy and use once, and then you hang it up on a wall. So they had a building dedication service. When our building on Devereux Street was built in 1931, they had a building dedication service. It is something that churches do to just mark and set apart their facilities to God. And, you know, schools, libraries, other people do it too. Uh, They have dedication services. Now, as we're going through Nehemiah, and we only have today and next Sunday, and then we're done with Nehemiah, if you can believe it. 
As we're going through Nehemiah, we know that they have rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And does anyone remember how many days it took to do that? 52. Diana's always on point with the 52 thing. 52 days to rebuild the wall, which is pretty fast. It's way faster than they should normally be able to do that in their own strength. So it seems like they got a little help from God in rebuilding that. In 52 days, they rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem. And then after the wall was built, they began to rebuild the culture inside of the city. They were reading scripture publicly, confessing and repenting of sin, uh, worshiping publicly. They reinstituted uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, which next week I'm going to remind you that we're going to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles here. We're going to build a little booth, and, but I'll talk about that next week. But they started, first they rebuilt the wall, then they're rebuilding the culture. In chapter 12, they are dedicating the wall. They have really legitimately a dedication service for the wall. I'm not even stretching it to say it's a dedication. As we're going to read in Nehemiah 12, it says when they dedicated the wall. So they have this dedication service of the wall. Um, and it's pretty cool, actually. It's, a, it's an interesting story. So I'm going to, it's a long chapter. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. We're going to read some sections from Nehemiah 12. I want to explain to you exactly what happened, and then I want to draw out this principle. It's really, for the most part, one central principle, and I'm not going to spend the whole day in Nehemiah 12 today. We actually are going to jump to a couple places today, which we don't normally do. But I want to just read from Nehemiah 12 a couple, a couple excerpts. If you can go to the next slide for me, Nate. So this is starting in verse 27 of Nehemiah 12. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. This is the New American Standard Version. Now at the time, no, sorry, now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Okay, so they are having a dedication. They expect it to be upbeat. Uh, there's rejoicing, thanksgiving, all sorts of good stuff. So this is not a, a, a sad morning event. This is, a, this is a celebration. Next slide for me, Nate. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall. So let me stop here. They came up on top of the wall. This is not some narrow little wall like you would put up in your house. This is a wall kind of like the Great Wall of China that's broad enough that you could walk on it. So they get up on the wall on top of it. And I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the refuse gate. Hoshiah and half the leaders of Judah followed them with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them at the fountain gate, they went directly up the steps of the city of David by the stairway of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. Next slide. The second choir proceeded to the left while I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of furnaces to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim by the old gate, by the fish gate, the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred as far as the sheep gate and they stopped at the gate of the guard. We all know where they are at this point, right? I mean, they're to the left of the sheep gate. Uh, then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God, so did I and half of the officials with me, and the priests. And the singers sang with Jezariah their leader, and on that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, because God had given them great joy, even the women and children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. All right, 
There is, a, there is a main event that happens in this passage. Nehemiah appoints two choirs. Did you catch that in the passage? Okay, it's right there. I'm not making this up. Nehemiah creates or appoints two choirs. The choirs go up on the wall. Again, this is a big enough wall that they can walk on. Okay? Uh, Nate, can you go to the next slide for me? Great. This is a map. Kind of, I guess if you call this a map, a, a, a diagram of Jerusalem at the time this was happening, okay? So, Nehemiah gets, let's see if I can do this here, all right. Nehemiah gets these choirs, and they start right here. And it says one of them goes to the right past the refuse gate or the dung gate. So, the, the first choir, it starts here, and it goes down and around, the other choir starts here, and it goes up. And the two choirs start together, separate. They walk on top of the wall around the city, and they meet on the other side. Do you get that? It's not that hard of a, of a thing to understand, right? It'd be like if, uh, if Kate started over here, and I started over here, and we were singing, which is, you know, we do that. And we walked, and we met in the back, and uh, I don't know, then we did a building dedication service at the end. So they, they walk along. Now it says in the last verse that I read, in the last verse of the passage, that the singing was heard from afar. So they were singing pretty loudly. I don't know how big these choirs were, but if they were, if, if they were like in David's time, it was about 4,000 people. These choirs were walking, singing. You could hear them outside of the city and inside of the city. And Jerusalem was not that big. I mean, to be honest, Jerusalem was not that big. Um, the little uh, measurement at the bottom here is, is 300 yards. So you're talking like at its widest point, Jerusalem is only 450 yards. Uh, that's, you know, 1,500 feet or less. Jerusalem is not very big at this time. So that you would have probably at some point, even especially where it's really narrow, they could have seen each other across and probably even heard each other the whole city would have had worship kind of going over it you know and then on the outside you have the the cities on the outside hearing the singing that says that it was heard from afar there's three times in the bible where israel gets so loud that the other nations hear them this is one of those times so the singing's being heard the whole city is probably being blanketed or covered with praise uh, with worship and that is how they dedicated the temple. Now, if you, Nate, can you go back two slides for me? There are some, some phrases that I underlined here, because as I read this passage, I noticed there's this rhythm. There's kind of like this, this thing that popped out to me that I never noticed before. It says that they used the instruments of David, and they went to the city of David, and they went to the house of David, and I found six different places in this chapter where they did something related to David. So go three slides forward for me, Nate. I know we're jumping around a little bit. Just hang with me. Go one more. All right. David, who lived 500 years prior to this, okay, 500 years prior, 12 generations, 12 and a half generations, David's worship had influence on Nehemiah's people's worship. Even though David lived 500 years earlier, look at how they're doing this. It says in verse 24 that they sang songs of praise 
and thanksgiving as was prescribed by David. So David is essentially, 500 years later, David essentially is inspiring their worship set, the songs they pick. Then it says that they use the instruments of David. So not only is David setting the tone even after his death, they're, they're using the same instruments that David used. The, the instrument that David made famous was called the lyre or the lyre, depending on how you pronounce it. It's pretty much like a little harp. Do you, did you guys know that David played a little lyre? Okay, if you remember when Saul, King Saul was going mad, he would bring David in to play. It's like a little harp, kind of. Uh, if, yeah, there it is. Great, thank you. Uh, that's a modern day one. That's not exactly what they looked like back then. But when I look at that, does that look like any modern day instrument to you? No? To me, it looks like a guitar without a neck. Right? I mean, like if you threw a stick on the top of it, that would essentially be a guitar. I'm not saying that a guitar and a lyre are the same thing, but I am saying that the, the idea of them is the same. It's a stringed instrument um, that you pluck. Uh, you don't strum this like you would a guitar. You pluck it, which makes it a little bit different. But it's essentially, when it comes down to instruments, it's pretty similar. Uh, I say that as someone who plays no instruments. Let me ask Kevin. He'd probably say they're completely different. But uh, So this is the lyre. This is what David would play. And so when it says they played the instruments of David, they would have got some of these out and used these, and they would have plucked them as they walked throughout the city. Then they went to the city of David, so the southern part of Jerusalem, the city, the southern part, like we have South Philly, is still part of Philly, right? The southern part of Jerusalem would have been the city of David. Then not only did they go to David's city or part of town, they went to David's house. And they did all of this at the command of David 500 years earlier. And they worshipped as if they were in the days of David. So it seems like David is kind of their example here, right? Now, there is a name that I, I, interestingly, there is a name that does not show up in Nehemiah 12, and it's Moses. They do not look to Moses in chapter 12. They look to Moses in other chapters. But in this chapter, they do not look to Moses as their example for how to worship. They look to David for their example of how to worship. That's important. Because, you know, if you're looking at main characters of the Old Testament, Moses and David have to be in your top couple. But they're looking at David. So I find this fascinating. David's worship is still influencing generations 12 or 13 generations later. 500 years later, they're worshiping the way David worshiped. None of these people ever met David, but the stories of David were carried on. And even now, like, if you... If you're a worship leader or someone who does music or poetry in a church, you are probably at some point going into the Psalms to get inspiration. Many of those were written by David. We still, 2,000 years after Jesus, are reading the Psalms written by David, in a, many of them in a cave. We're looking to those to get worship from, right? I mean, I had Shay specifically read from Psalm 150 today. David was a worshiper who set an example that we're still following nearly 3,000 years after his death that they were following 500 years after his death. Do you get that? They're looking to David as their example. 
They want to they worship as if the days of David, at the command of David, they go near the house in the city of David. They're using the instruments of David, and they're even worshiping the way David said for them to worship. Now, we're in Nehemiah. David is in, like, First and Second Samuel, but they're pulling from him. And they want to worship the way David worshipped. David set the tone as a worshiper. I, I, I actually think, I don't think David worshipped like a Jew. I think Jews worship like David. He set the bar for his whole people group. And he still sets the, the bar for us. If you've ever been to a Jewish synagogue or even a Messianic Jewish church, uh, sometimes you'll see that they, they will dance in a circle. Has anyone ever seen this? Or maybe on TV? They will dance in a circle. They don't call it Jewish dancing. They don't call it Hebrew dancing. They call it Davidic dancing. They named it after David. Davidic comes from David. It's the adjective form of that. So Davidic worship, Davidic dancing. David is their example for how to worship. Everyone got that? And even as I was reading this, there's like a rhythm to it. Every, every phrase is like a prepositional phrase. Prescribed by David, instruments of David, city of David, house of David, command of David, days of David. It, it just kind of popped out at me like it's almost like Nehemiah wrote this with a, a rhythm in mind, or a cadence in mind, just David, David, David. And so I jumped, I, I, had, to, I had to figure this out here this week. I think David is still to us the example of worship. We're going to come back to Nehemiah in a little bit before we wrap up. But we need to step out of Nehemiah for a minute. Because if we really want to have the same experience they had in Nehemiah 12, we need to understand David. We're not going to do it right now, but if you went into this back room to my left, your right, back around the corner into this round room, you'll see it's full of stained glass uh, people in stained glass. Not like their bodies, but you know. You know how stained glass works. Uh, and one of them is David. And you'll see David in the stained glass is holding a, le- a lyre or a little harp. And David was a worshiper. What's David's nickname? Does anyone know? David is known as the man, say it louder, Kate, after God's own heart. Thank you, Kate, valedictorian. The man after God's own heart, right? That was David's, like, Twitter handle, at man after God's own heart, hashtag dance naked. You know, David danced, he worshiped so much that he danced out of his clothes. Did you know that about David? I've never done that. And it will not be done today, here at least, or ever. It will, you know what, I'm not going to limit myself. But it won't be done here today, let's just say that. So don't get your hopes up. Um... David danced out of his clothes. In fact, David worshipped God so fervently that his wife got annoyed. Because when David was dancing and his clothes were flying off, she's like, oh, look at you acting like that in front of all the other ladies. Which I would think is a reasonable thing to say. But uh, her name was Michal. And God said, uh, David said, I'm going to get even more undignified than that. And... Uh, Things did not go well for David's wife after that. But David is the example of worship in the Old Testament, but I also am pretty sure he's he's the example of worship in the New Testament, and I'm going to explain why. So bear with me for about 15 minutes while we step out of Nehemiah, and I want to show you two 
uh, principles of worship, two Davidic concepts, okay? The first is the Tabernacle of David. Now, how many of you have heard of the Tabernacle of David from the Bible? Not the Philadelphia Tabernacle of David, but the Tabernacle of David in the Bible. Raise your hand nice and high. I want to see. Okay, a few of you. All right. The second concept is the key of David. How many of you are from, have heard of at least the, the phrase, the key of David? Okay, a couple of you. All right, I see my wife raising her hand because I yammer on about this all the time. All right, I'm going to explain the, key, the tabernacle of David first. I mentioned Moses earlier. When I say tabernacle, most people think of Moses, right? Moses had a tabernacle, uh, you know, it had the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke by day. Uh, actually, it was God that had the tabernacle. It was in the midst of Israel, but Moses got the, the blueprint for it. So there's this tabernacle. It's essentially a tent. Back when Israel was living in uh, the wilderness, they were all living in tents. God had his own tent in the middle of the, the grounds. It was the biggest, best tent, and there was always a pillar of fire and smoke above it. Inside the tent where the, was the Ark of the Covenant, Okay, the Ark of the Covenant, do you remember this from Indiana Jones? It was a gold-plated box, uh, two, had two angels on top of it, not real angels, but like uh, carved angels on top of it. Inside the box were the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, and Aaron's staff, his, his uh, shepherd's, well, it wasn't a shepherd's staff, it was a priest's staff. And in, that was inside of it. And that Ark... That Ark of the Covenant, not Noah's Ark, that Ark of the Covenant represented the manifest presence of God to Israel. That was where God was, and they believed that God was above the Ark, that he kind of sat above the Ark. And it sat inside this tabernacle, and whenever Israel had to move through the wilderness, they'd have to pack everything up, carry it, and then when they stopped, they'd have to unpack everything and set it back up. That Ark was, it represented to them the manifest presence of God. Here's the thing about the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. How many, does anyone remember how, who could visit that ark? Just one person, the priest, the high priest. Got some wildness out there. Uh, are those our kids? Okay, well, that makes me feel better at least, I guess. They're having a good time. Uh, I'm kind of jealous, actually. Okay. Only the priest, there was one man that could go into the manifest presence of God. And even he could only go once a year. So one man could go once a year and experience the manifest presence of God on behalf of the whole nation. That is something that made Pentecost, that's why Pentecost was important to us and the whole new covenant is important to us because any of us can experience the manifest presence of God at any time now. But, we, but back then it was one man for one day a year. Do you get that? See why that's a little, it's important that the veil was torn and, and the covenants changed? Now, that's Moses' tabernacle. Over time, Israel did not care for the, they did not take care of the Ark of the Covenant. It was captured. It kind of went back and forth. Eventually, King David said, I want that Ark. And he went and he got it. He won a battle and got it back from the Philistines because he cared for it so much. He valued it so much. That right there should show you why God trusted David. He went and got the, the ark back. And he did not set up Moses' tabernacle. He made his own. He took the ark, he set it up, and he, he made his own tent, 
And that is the tabernacle of David. And let me tell you a little bit about the tabernacle of David and why it's different from the tabernacle of Moses. David paid 4,000 singers to work night and day in that tabernacle, worshiping and praying. And then he got another 288 musicians. So 4,300 people Their full-time job was to worship and pray in shifts so that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, God was always being worshipped and prophecy was always being spoken in Israel. You get that? 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That was not one person doing it 24-7. That would be impossible. But they would go in shifts, take a couple hours, and then someone else would come in and relieve them. There was never a moment during the season, the days of David. Remember the days of David was up on the screen? There was, there was a season under David's reign where there was not a minute that went by that God was not being worshipped inside that city. And that's the tabernacle of David. And the fact that 4,300 people got their full-time job doing that, that, it says something about those people, but it really says something about David, that he was willing to put that kind of resource into the, uh, the worship, the 24-7 worship of God. Now, um, that's, that's something, isn't it? We as a church struggle to, to put together a worship team on a Sunday, let alone 24-7. And I said that at both campuses. You know, 24-7 is wild. And, and sometimes people look at that and they say, that's kind of excessive, isn't it? I mean, really? Come on. I mean, if you're doing that 24-7, what are you, when are you doing outreach? When are you reading the Bible or preaching? When are you serving the hungry? But you don't have to choose between the two if you have enough people doing it, right? You can still care for the poor and minister to the presence of the Lord. You can still teach God's word and minister to the presence of the Lord. And so there's this 24-7 thing going. 24-7 is not excessive once you've understood what God is worth. You know, like sometimes I go to this grocery store in Jersey called Wegmans. You guys know Wegmans? Okay, I heard there's some Wegmans cookies for after, after church today. I go to Wegmans. It's like one of those like organic high-end grocery stores. And I look at something, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's excessive. That price, it's not worth it. Well, maybe it is worth it, but I don't know what grass-fed beef is worth, you know? So to me, the price looks excessive, but if I knew what it was worth, maybe it wouldn't feel that way. That's kind of a really bad illustration of sometimes we think God is asking a lot from us and that he's, like, too demanding. That generally is an indicator that we don't understand his worth because no one ever stands before God and says, you are too demanding. They normally fall on their faces like they're dead, and say, holy, 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 or worthy, worthy, worthy. And th- I mean, that's what they say in heaven, right? Worthy, worthy, worthy. It's like, you're worth it, you're worth it, you're worth it. So 24-7 is not excessive. 24-7 is actually our restriction, because he's worth 25-8. But we don't have 25-8. We have 24-7. But he's worth more of it. 24-7 is what we are limited to, but he's worth more. Do you get that? So this idea of the tabernacle of David, this is why this is important. If you will go, I don't have this up on the screen. If you have a Bible, go to uh, Acts 15. If you don't have a Bible, I'm going to read it for you. 
In Acts 15, there is actually a prophecy. Acts 15, starting in verse 15. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. So there is actually a New Testament prophecy in Acts 15 that the tabernacle of David that I just explained is going to be rebuilt at some point. Before the Lord's return, that kind of worship is going to be restored. Now, I don't know if it's going to be a literal tabernacle. I actually kind of doubt that because if it was in one place, it would be harder to maintain 24-7. But I think it's that kind of 24-7 night and day worship. That is what's going to be restored before the Lord returns. Now, I bet that if we got every church in Philly to cooperate, we could probably cover 24-7, right? You know, like if every church took a shift, we could probably do that within our city. And there are actually groups that are trying to accomplish that, and we should support them because they're fulfilling a prophecy. But I also know, I mean, think about this. In Nehemiah's day, if you were worshiping God, the God of the Bible, you were probably in that city, right? I mean, you were, everyone that was worshiping the God of the Bible probably was in one time zone, right? But now that, now that the New Testament, or now, nowadays, Christianity, the movement of Jesus, has spread so broadly that when, even when we're not worshiping Jesus, I bet someone in China is. And if they're not, someone in South America is. You know, and if they're not, someone in, Af in Africa in another time zone. Even like, when we wrap up, church is just starting on the West Coast. You know, because Jesus' movement has spread so broadly, he probably already is receiving 24-7 praise. And then think even higher up, in heaven he already is. I mean, Revelation 4, there's 24 elders and four living creatures that are worshiping God around the throne non-stop. They don't sleep, they don't rest. And I don't think they're forced into it, I think they want to be there. So do you understand, this Tabernacle of David thing is going to be rebuilt at some point before the Lord returns? Even if it's not a physical tabernacle, it's the idea of night and day worship. So Davidic worship, night and day, okay? That's, that is a unique uh, distinctive of David's worship. It's night and day, 24-7, never stops. Again, that doesn't mean any of one of us have to do it our, on ourselves, but as a group, you facilitate that. Any, are you good on that? Because I know some of this is like, maybe it's nap time and you need to, do you need to stretch before we get on to the key of David? Anyone? Okay, we're going to do this key of David thing. All right. The key of David, I noticed less hands went up with this, and that's fine. I did, not, I, I did not know what the tabernacle of David or the key of David were until I'd been a Christian for 15 years. I had a Bible, I had a Bible freaking degree and did not know what these were. I still have that degree. I'm still paying for it. And I didn't know what these were. All right, the key of David. If you have a Bible, go to Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 22. Verse 22, chapter 22, verse 22. This is pretty simple. Don't overthink this. Uh, Isaiah 22, 22 says, I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. 
When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. All right, I need you to repeat a phrase after me. This is, this is the phrase I need you to repeat. When he shuts, no one will open. When he opens, no one will shut. Okay, so let's say this. When he shuts, no one will open. When he opens, no one will shut. Okay, just keep that in the back of your brain. Now, there's only one other place that the key of David is mentioned in the Bible, and it's in Revelation chapter 3. So if you want to go there, this is the letter to the church in Philadelphia. Not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, although that would be awesome. But this is not the same Philadelphia. Uh, this is Revelation 3.7. It says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, says this. So here's the first thing you need to understand about the key of David. Whatever it is, and we're going to get there, whatever the key of David is, it opens things that no one else can shut, and it shuts things that no one else can open. We good on that? It's only mentioned twice in the Bible, and both times it, it explains it as a key that opens things that no man can shut and shuts things that no man can open. Now, you need to understand the key of David is not a literal key. Okay, I don't have, my, oh, I do have some of my keys on me. Okay. It is not a literal key. It is a metaphor, okay? There is not some key buried in the Middle East that we need to go un uncover. It's not like the, uh, the uh, Holy Grail. It's not some religious relic. It is a principle, okay? When I think of keys, for instance, uh, these are my keys to this building. There's a lot. It took me like a year to memorize which one goes where. All right, I was given these keys... And because I was given these keys, that gives me some level of authority, right? It gives me authority to come and go in the building whenever I need to go. I was also given it out of trust. They trust me with this. In fact, I got these keys in waves. I didn't get keys to the house till we'd been here for a year. So it was kind of like they were learning whether they could trust me. Uh, last or This morning, we had to give these keys to Ruby because I got here late and Ruby opened up because I trust Ruby against... All my judgment. I trust Ruby. And we gave, you know, and we gave these keys to Ruby. And I, in a sense, in giving them to her, I'm transferring temporarily my authority. And because I trust her, and she had these keys. Right? So keys do, especially in the Bible, in a, in a poetic sense, keys represent authority and access. Right? I mean, I have people that have an extra key to my house or key to my car. If you give someone a key, you're giving them some level of permission. Is it right? You're giving them access. You trust them. And when they have that key, they can do things with it, right? I mean, and I remember like in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I'm giving you, the, to Peter, he says, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you loose on earth should be loosed in heaven, or whatever you bind on earth should be bound in heaven. So he's giving authority to Peter. So keys, especially in the Bible, represent authority, okay? Remember this, keys represent authority in the Bible, the key of David represents authority. David was known, as Kate pointed out, as the man after God's own heart. David's theme in life was intimacy with God. So the key of David is authority that comes through intimacy with God. I mean, there's ways to get authority. You can raise your voice. You can sweat. You can work. But the way that David got authority is through relating to God. His intimacy with God and his friendship with God is what gave him authority to be the king. And it's why David was picked 
to be the king because, you know, David was not Saul's son. The, the kingdom went uh, Saul, David, Absalom, right? But that was not necessarily genealogical. David was not Saul's descendant. David was selected by God because his heart was worthy of it. He was, God could trust David. His intimacy with God ended up giving him great authority. And from the day that David got anointed king to the day he actually got, got to be king was about 14 years, I think. I don't know about you, but I don't know that I could wait 14 years. I might try to take out the guy ahead of me. And we know that David did not do that. So the key of David is, I'm just summarizing it, authority that comes through intimacy. Not raising your voice or forcing your will, but intimacy with God. You relate to God, you worship, you get authority. Here's, this is honestly, truly how I see this unfolding. If I am intimate with God, he will give me authority on the earth. He'll give my prayers authority. He will give ministry authority. He will give fruit if I relate to God. Do you understand that? Because then I, I prove that I'm trustworthy. We good on the key of David. Okay, now I need to, I need to back up one step. There was something from the tabernacle of David I, I, I failed to mention. So can you hang with me for a second as I review that? Uh, in... in uh, Acts 15, let me find that again. It says that they're gonna, uh, God is going to rebuild the tabernacle of David, or that the tabernacle of David will be rebuilt, right? In verse 17, it tells us why. In verse 17, why is the tabernacle of David going to be rebuilt? So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. The purpose of the tabernacle of David and that 24-7 worship is to actually draw people to God. Generally, I think churches try to replace that with outreach events and entertainment and other things that will never actually replace the manifest presence of God. But that 24-7 worship is actually what draws people in. Like, we could have a thousand outreach events and not ever see any result if we don't pray. On the flip side, if we pray, we could probably never have an outreach event and still see fruit. Now, thankfully, we don't have to make that choice. You can do both. You get out on the streets, you meet people, you be a good neighbor, you get active in your community, and we pray, and we see results. You got that? But, but it's actually the 24-7 worship that causes the rest of mankind to seek the Lord. Not your cool cotton candy machine, or your cool outreach event, or your awesome church graphics. It's, it's seeking the presence of God that draws people in. We should, there's no reason to choose between the two, but really we should prioritize seeking the presence of God. All right, you guys got this uh, Tabernacle of David and Key of David thing down? I think these are important for understanding worship. Um, okay, because if we want to worship the way David worshiped, which takes us back to Nehemiah 12, because that's what they wanted. They wanted to worship the way David worshiped. And we should want to worship the way David worshiped. We should look to David as our worship example. And David was not just the Old Testament worshiper because it says in Acts, which is in which testament? The New Testament. That in the future, the tabernacle of David is going to be rebuilt. David's worship is not Old Testament. It's what I saw, call supra-testament. It's both. 
Everyone cool with that? All right. So Nehemiah 12, let me wrap up with this. I'm doing okay. Nehemiah 12. They're trying to worship the way David worshiped. They get these two choirs. They march them around the city, right? They send them around the city. You guys remember this from like 20 minutes ago? <laughs> it's a rough one today. They send them around the city. They, they march, right? It says that their sound was heard far off on the outside. We also know that they should have been heard on the inside, probably heard one another. Today, I want to do something a little bit like that. We're not going to march. What we are going to do is, I want to ask you to get up out of your seats. We did this at Wissanoming, and it, they, they loved it. I want to ask you to get up out of your seats, spread out. I want to ask some of you, go get by a window. And we're going to sing again. So where's the worship team? Come on up, worship team. We're going to sing again. And in the same way that they dedicated Jerusalem by filling it with worship, both inside and out, like it spilled out, but it also filled up on the inside, we are going to do that. So I want some of you find a window, okay? Be by a window. You don't have to scream out the window. I don't want anyone to think we're torturing you. But we want the sound to go out the window. We want the neighborhood to hear the worship. You don't all have to be by windows, but if a few of you are, that would be good. And we just want to fill this up, up this place up with worship and fill it up with praise. Um, you've had a little bit of time now to warm up, so do not hold back. Feel free to sing out loudly. We picked the loudest song we got today to close up with, all right? So we're going to worship for a little bit. Feel free, even if you want to go toward the back of the sanctuary, you can do that. And then uh, we'll wrap up after this. Thank you.
So I want to send you guys home with, go ahead, you can clap, that's fine. You can come, come back in because we're going to bring the kids in for something, but I want to send you guys home with a little homework. Do this in your house sometime. You might need to wait maybe possibly till you're home alone depending on your situation. But uh, I live in a row house. I know my neighbors are going to hear it, but they're beyond thinking that I'm normal. Uh, take this home. Do it in your car. If you say, but people will hear me. That's a little bit the point. Um, but you, you know, they dedicated a city through song. You can dedicate your house that way. Dedicate your car, depending on your work. Maybe you want to do it there. Um, I used to walk on Frankfurt Ave worshiping. I, I probably need to get back to doing that. Uh, I will say this. You will be surprised what happens when you do that. Um, things change. So I want to pray for us. Uh, I want us to be a singing congregation, a singing church. We dedicate things to God by prayer. We change the atmosphere. Uh, we dedicate things to God by song. We change the atmosphere by song. And I do not want us to restrict ourselves when it comes to worship because they, it was such a key part of uh, Israel and Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. Lord, uh, we want to be a singing congregation. We want to worship the way that David worshiped. Lord, and, uh, we want to see that tabernacle of David rebuilt in our church, that kind of like unceasing worship in our church and in our city and really worldwide, Lord. We just long to see an increase in worship and prayer, Lord. Lord, I pray, uh, would you remove all the stuff that keeps us from being willing to do this, the fear, the shyness, uh, even the doubt that like maybe this doesn't work or really accomplish anything, Lord. Show us how to shift and change the, the spiritual atmosphere. You've assigned that to us, Jesus. I pray that, Lord, in your name. Amen. All right. Are the kids here yet? Yeah, go get them. All right, can you guys hang tight? Just chill. You can talk amongst yourselves. I'll give you a topic. Should the Eagles have cut Tim Tebow and Matt Barkley, both strong believers, is there any hope for the Eagles? Go ahead. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs>